Gospels. This is our second week studying the parables. I'm just going to read the passage today, and then we'll dive right in. It's Luke chapter 11, verse 1 to 13. You can pull that up on your phones or look it up on your Bibles with paper. Luke 11, 1 to 13. Just a little aside, as we do the parables, I think sometimes we have just the verse you know, we put it up on the screen, and you're like, that's good, I got enough. But with parables, especially, I think all the time, it'd be cool if you have your Bible open while there's sermons happening. But especially this series, do Luke 11, pull it up, and so you can look through the parables as we're going through them. It says this, one day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John, his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer to him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your sons asked for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is God's word. Amen. Yeah. Have you ever cried out to God, like really, really prayed, like prayed for something very specifically, earnestly, with tons of determination, tons of consistency? Have you ever prayed for something like that? Yeah, you can share what it was too. And Jared, do I need, am I doing something wrong? Okay. Just, am I standing in the wrong spot? Okay. All right. Yeah, Allie, what's one of those things? Yeah, you prayed really specifically for little Lenny to not be in the knee queue. Yeah. What else? Anybody else prayed real specifically like that before? Solomon's birth, a lot of birthing, a lot of labors. Yeah. It's a definite. Yeah. I just remember when I was being born, it was pretty chaotic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I I first remember praying that way with such specificity and earnestness when I was 11. And this is going to sound so, so sad now that I think about it. When I was 11, we had just moved to a new place. I remember praying earnestly that way just for like a friend. Yeah? Have you ever done that? Maybe it's just me. I remember asking God for a job once, asking God for a break, asking God for a car. And that might sound like real materialistic, but we had a Saturn view 
that was leaking water and not like, oh, as you drove, water was falling out of like the, the car. No, we lived in Portland, Oregon, and so our car was full of water every morning. And so we're like, oh, God, could you just give us a car? I remember praying for a house that we could just have some little place somewhere that we could call our own. Like you guys, I prayed for, for Mirella when Truman was born because she wasn't recovering. I've prayed like that many times when someone in our church is going to the hospital or entering the hospital. I prayed that way once as I drove across the countryside looking for a friend who was on a meth-induced trip, and I just wanted to find him and know that he was safe. The disciples asked Jesus, they say, teach us to pray, maybe because they assumed they were doing it wrong. I think maybe they were asking God, they were praying, but nothing was actually happening. They were trying, but they didn't see any real results. And so I'm glad that they asked Jesus, how are we supposed to pray? Because I have the same struggle. Because if prayer is about asking and receiving, if prayer is about getting healed or about getting things that we need or about becoming whole, getting whole, then I must be doing it wrong. How do we pray to get what we ask for? How do we pray so that we can get what we need? How do we pray so that we can find all the things that we're looking for? You know, I think I just, you know, I don't know if anyone saw Sing 2, but, you know, I, I find it really great that Bono still hasn't found what he's looking for. I mean, I think even now that he's, you know, as a lion, he still doesn't know or still hasn't found what he's looking for. And that, that feels like me that maybe we're doing prayer wrong because we're not finding, we're not receiving, we're not getting. Jesus, after all, he says, and you might be thinking, Brad, you're putting too much on prayer. But Jesus says, ask and it will be given. He says, knock and it will be opened. He says, seek and you will find. And then he says, everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. Everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Everyone always. And I know that you might be thinking, oh, surely there's some weird grammatical thing happening in the Greek. You know, like I have, I have a good friend who's like, the problem with Christianity is you guys always have an answer for everything, right? You always have a little trick up your sleeve. No, no, really means ask always everyone. And so I don't think I understand prayer. You know, I understand the model of prayer that, that Jesus shows here. I've actually preached on it multiple times since being here in this church, and I think we'll preach again on it later this year. It's a beautiful model prayer. I understand that. You can, you know, look it up on Spotify if you want to go way back in time. I understand the mechanics of prayer, the model of prayer, I just don't think I'm getting it right because it doesn't seem to be working. And maybe that's you too. Maybe prayer's not working for you that way. Or maybe you're one of the always everyone people. I think Jesus anticipates our problems. And so Jesus tells a parable about a friend so that we can get into prayer and understand it. Maybe there's something that we've overlooked in prayer. Maybe there's something that we've been missing all along. And so that's what we're going to look at today is we're going to go deeper. Maybe we'll learn the secrets of prayer, 
But this is the parable that Jesus tells. He tells a story about there's this friend who's completely unprepared for a guest. And I know for us, we think about hospitality as this like kind of added thing that we do in life. Like, hey, you know what? Let's invite our friends over and we're going to show them a really good time. Maybe we get to show them our fancy new whiskey that we bought over Christmas. And then maybe we can show them how we make good cocktails or make good charcuterie boards. And and we want to just, it's like a big show fun thing. We want to have that kind of party festival. And so we plan it out, especially in LA. You're like, hey, could you come in June over to my house? for cocktails and charcuterie. But what happened in the, in the Middle East that still even goes on today, and culturally, hospitality was not this thing that you did to be added on to for fun in life. Like there was no Martha Stewart kind of idea of hospitality. It was at its root obligation. And now there's this ancient scholar, this lady who wrote a fantastic book about hospitality in the ancient world. If you want it, I'll give it to you super, super dorky. But anyway, what she she talks about all the time is that there was a deep obligation around shame and honor that everyone had to always make space for any guest that was coming. And in this story, what happened is there's a friend who has another friend who's coming to town and he knows he's traveling. He's traveling all through the night, through the day, from, from really far away. And the obligation is, is that when he arrives, He will get more than enough food, more than enough wine, more than enough space to sleep and to rest. That was just the cultural obligation. And the main character friend in this story has completely disregarded that obligation. You know, he's one of those people who just didn't plan, didn't prepare. Kind of reminds me of the Michael Scott, Scott Potts in The Office, where he's like, I really wanted to. I really wanted to be that kind of person that could pay for everyone's college, but I can't because I didn't actually accomplish it. That's this friend. This friend just really, he didn't prepare his house. He didn't make the bread. He didn't do any of that. He's caught, unprepared, unready to host. And so what he does to save himself is he goes and he begins to knock on his neighbor's doors, waking them up in the middle of the night saying, I have a friend here, please give me some bread. Actually, he, he kind of demands it. And then Jesus says that a person, that person, you laying in bed while your kids are asleep, while they're all, all tucked away, while you're trying to get rest, that person will get up and give the person all that they need. And he says that's what prayer is all about. The first uh, real big observation I have about this parable is in the pairing of words that Jesus has in his model prayer And then in this parable, there's two words that are completely linked. And it's father and friend. Uh, Both of these words are in the vocative case. And I know this is so nerdy. But what happens in Greek, and we don't have this type of noun or anything like that, but you could add a few little letters at the end of a noun to make it really stand out and to change the whole purpose behind that noun. What these, the vocative case, you can, I don't know, this is so dorky, I know. I try to explain it to Josh at a Laker game. And I was like, well, this isn't just the right setting because we're watching the Lakers. But it means that these words are relating to a person. that And these words are altered, altered so that we can know that it's addressing someone personally and with intensity. For example, when we say things like, hey, babe, 
that that's the closest thing we have in English. That hey babe is the vocative case of I'm calling out to you, I'm getting your attention, and it's completely from this personal relationship that we already have. Or when we say, what should I do, boss? Or perhaps, you know, maybe the best example is when you see a friend on the other side of the street and you're walking around and you're just super excited. You see them, you're like, oh my gosh, somebody I know. And then so you yell out and you scream for their attention. You might yell their name over and over again. You know, like, hey, Brad, hey, Brad, hey, Brad. This happens to me all the time. But then if that friend doesn't hear, if they don't hear you, if they don't know what you're doing, then you might go into their, their nickname and you might yell out, hey, Watto, hey, be lunch my nicknames. Uh, so that then through the noise, they hear you in their ears. They think, I know this person, like somebody who truly knows me is calling out for me. And so then they look at attention. That's what the vocative is in Greek. And that's what these two words are father and friend. And these are not, this isn't used all over the New Testament, all over the Bible. These are completely rare instances. And so that they're found here at the beginning of the model prayer, father, hallowed be your name. And then at the very beginning of the parable, when it says, friend, lend me these loaves, they're completely linked on purpose. It's part of the beauty of scripture. It's a high literature piece. But he says, father, hallowed be your name. The name and its use is like a child who's crying out in the middle of the night because they've had a nightmare, and they yell out, Dad, Dad. It's like the name that's used when a child's about to jump into the pool and do some cool trick, and they just want their dad to notice, and they say, Hey, Dad, look. Like, that's what it is. Or when a grown adult calls their father for advice, and their dad answers the phone, and they say, Hey, Dad. That's what it means. Father, hallowed be your name. And then friend, that's the name used when you give a speech at a retirement party. And you said, friend, you've meant so much to me. It's the name and use when you text someone and you say, hey, let's meet up for coffee. Friend, in this sense, is the name used when you wake up your friends in the middle of the night because you're desperately in need. And you said, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. And what I take from that, and I know that that, that was a, a deep dive into Greek grammar, but what it means to me is, and I think it, what it means for everyone, is that prayer must be a crying out in the personal, in the named, in the intimate. That prayer is that kind of intimate desperation. And this is such a different orientation than I often have with God. God, just that, that word, is just an impersonal pronoun. It's an it, God, a thing, God, a concept. Then prayer is just a practice. Prayer is a thing to do. It's not a person to cry out to. It's not an arena of relationship. Prayer is depersonalized. And Eugene Peterson, he says something about this so much better than I can do, specifically even about this parable. He says this, he says, this story brings God into personal focus. We depersonalize God by generalizing him. God is an idea. God is a force. God is dogma. But since we can't love an idea or a force or a dogma, we effectively remove the biblical command, love God, and replace it with verbs such as acknowledge, 
respect, consider, defend, study. All verbs that require little, if any, personal relationship. But prayer uh, is not just based on personal relationship. Prayer is personal relationship. It's not just a calling out that we see in this, you know, the friend and father. Uh, It's also in the verbs that get used through this entire passage. They all exist in relationship, not because of relationship. The, the, The words are come, give, forgive, lend me, don't bother me, knock, seek, ask. These are all deeply familial friendship words. That's the only place those words even exist in any sanity. Prayer can only be learned through an immersion in the personal. It's never about getting the right wording. It's never about getting the right tone or getting the right order of things. It isn't a matter about good behavior that you must have or some sort of skillful manipulation with God. It's it's not about acquiring more information. Prayer is also not about getting in touch with yourself. Prayer is about being with Jesus. It's what prayer is. And so you might think, is that the trick to getting what we ask for? Make it really personal. Is that how you seek and find? Is that how you knock and you open? But Jesus says in this parable, he says, the friend will not give bread because of friendship, but because of your shameless audacity. So that's the second thing that I observed, this shameless audacity. The friend loses all sense of personal pride. He's gotten up in the middle of the night and he comes demanding. And it's not like this entitled demanding. It's really this demanding of, I have no other choice kind of demanding. Complete audacity. And here's what I've come to realize about prayer as well. That as we pray, that as we live in this relational connection with God, we don't become less needy, we become or less desperate when we pray. That, that as we pray, somehow we get to gain some, some more you know, self-fulfilled or self-sufficient status. Actually, prayer is this thing and this relationship in which we become more and more needy. The desperation builds over time. Prayer builds a complete neediness. And through that, I think what we really find is that through prayer, we become more and more human, more and more exposed, that we are who we are, and that, there's, that we're in charge of what we're actually in charge of, which is very small. We're in control of what we're actually in control of, and it's really small. Like a child who does gain the, that shameless audacity Truman yesterday, because he was given $6 at Christmas, my little son, continually came to me all throughout the day, can we please go to Target because I want to buy something? And I knew it's like, hey, there's nothing at Target for six bucks. Like inflation has happened. $6 will not buy you anything. But he desperately wanted to go. And then when we were there, he would not take, there's nothing here for me to buy as an answer. He searched and searched and searched until finally he found something that was $5 and he bought it so quickly. Like he couldn't, it's a little car. It's amazing. I think they used to be a dollar, even when, I mean, like a year ago. Now they're $5. 
That's shameless audacity. And that's the kind of neediness that Jesus says will make the friend get up and give it, give the friend everything that he needs. Hannah Moore, who was a poet and a leader of the abolitionist movement in the United Kingdom many, many years ago, she said this about prayer. She said, prayer is not eloquence, but earnestness. Not the definition of helplessness, but the feeling of it. Not figures of speech, but earnestness of soul. What the friend is saying is, I am unprepared for life. I'm completely exposed. I'm not where I want to be. I've not achieved what I thought I could achieve. I'm not meeting the standard of society. I'm not meeting my own standard. The friend comes and he says, help me. And the truth is, church, that that is the beginning of actual prayer. Not just the personal, but that understanding that I am unprepared for life, that I am exposed. We have to lay down our cynicism that we use to put ourselves above situations and kind of realize that we are walking in a world that we are not really prepared for, that we're really not achieving what we thought we could achieve. The things that we believe that should be good and right, we don't actually believe them in our souls. We don't actually live out justice, equality, harmony, grace, peace, all of those things. And so we come with that anguish, help me. And I think we might put it this other way of, have we started to pray if we haven't come to that point of desperation? Or are we really just kind of playing nice with God, saying grace, offering some sort of ceremony activity? I think that's really one of the, the baseline reasons of prayerlessness, where we're, we're really just not excited to engage in any of this stuff. Part of it is because we don't believe there's a relational aspect to God that we could actually know him and that he could know us. But I think the other part of it is, is we don't want to walk down that journey of more and more neediness. Because anyone that you see throughout the whole of scriptures, the more they see and they understand of God, the less and less they feel about themselves. And that's hard. Prayer is the feeling of neediness, Hannah Moore says. It's the earnestness of soul. And so we might think, is that the trick? To come personal, come relationally, and to be super, super needy, and then it's everyone who asks. Then it's everyone who knocks. Then it's everyone who seeks. Is that what it is? And see, I'm, I'm still not sure about that, because I feel like I've brought my messy, my tearful, and when I cry, I leak everywhere. So it's like, it's, I don't know if you've We've been together when I've cried, but it's, it's a full snot thing. It's a full I thing. I've wept that way. I've begged. I've pleaded. I've come to the end of myself, and I didn't get what I asked for. The door wasn't open. It doesn't seem like I found. So there must be something more. Jesus kind of ends this whole talk and teaching in verses 11 and 13, and you might have forgotten it by now, so it'll be up again. It says, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? 
If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask for him? This last, these last words, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I thought we were talking about bread and eggs and fish and healings in hospitals and jobs and income boosts and peace on earth. Who said anything about the Holy Spirit? Who brought that up into the conversation? Where did that come from? Jesus apparently has been talking all along not about those things, but about asking, receiving, knocking, and getting the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's personal presence with us in all of our speaking, all of our listening, all of our activity in life. It's God's presence in all the specific, mundane moments of life. Eugene Peterson, to quote him again, he says, the Spirit is God's comprehensive and personal presence. God's complete, all of God, that's the Holy Spirit, and all of his personal relationship with us present. Seems like the hunger, the begging, the pleading, that desperation, it's all for the Holy Spirit. Jesus thinks that that's what we're talking about. The shameless audacity is for the Spirit of the living God. The personal ask, those imperative verbs of come, give, let me receive, those imperative verbs, the vocative case, it's all for the Holy Spirit. It's as if he's saying, that's what you get, the knock, the receive, the, the asking, all of that. What you get always, everyone, forever, when you pray, when you ask, is God himself comprehensive and personal? Knock on the door for the Spirit, and it will be open to you, and you get to walk into the Spirit. Seek the Spirit, and you will find the living presence of God. Ask for more of that comprehensive presence of God, and it will be given to you more and more. That's pretty great. But I wonder, because this parable is so good, do we prefer the snake over the fish? He says, the father, what fathers, when a kid asks for fish, is going to give him a snake instead? He says, or if your son asks for an egg, you're going to give him a scorpion instead. And there's this image of like a father who might have access to both. And he's like, the father is going to give you the good thing. See, what I think sometimes what we do in prayer, uh, and this is what I'm suggesting, I guess is while Jesus is extending and offering us the spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, what we really prefer is what in his other hand, we prefer the cars, the careers, and the circumstance changes. He's giving us good gifts, but we would rather have what's in the other hand. Don't we kind of prefer tools that would make us more self-reliant? Or... Uh, especially over gifts that would make us more intensely dependent? Don't we prefer weapons uh, for cultural domination or tools that we can use for public prestige? Don't we prefer that 
over that deep understanding of the living God with us. Maybe it's because we want those other things in the other hand because that way we won't need him like that anymore. Maybe it's so we'll be more dignified, not this mess that we are now. Maybe it's because that's our dream, is to be a self-sufficient, well-mannered, successful person. But Jesus' dream for you is so much greater and so much sweeter. It's for the living God with you. He's offering you the abundance of the Holy Spirit. Now, spirit, throughout the whole scripture, it's so beautiful. It, It means presence. The same word is used to describe wind and breath or even just the breeze of God. The Holy Spirit's described as the comforter. Like you've never had a counselor, and I have really gifted counselors that I've seen in my life, but the Spirit is described to us as the greatest counselor and comforter. The Spirit is power in weakness. The Spirit is stability in storms. The Spirit is the one who gives us the ability to cry out, Father, and it be to God, not our earthly examples. And so my hope for you and for this entire church is that we would experience the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and that we would know the presence of the Spirit in every moment of our lives. Why? Not because it's an added on thing of like, wouldn't that be great if our church got a bonus of the Holy Spirit? No, the why is because we were made for that. We were made to walk in the comprehensive, personal presence of God. Genesis 1 says that the Spirit hovered over the waters of the deep, and that the Spirit, God, spoke, and there was creation. But that's not all. That's not why we were made for this. When God formed humanity, he got down close, intimately. In Genesis 2, you can read about it, and it says that he breathed. He, this is, (laughs) I was going to say the Hebrew word. He ruad, the Spirit. He breathed into his nostrils, and humanity walked with God in every aspect of life. God was with them in their marriage. God was with them in their building building of shelter. He was with them in their working with the animals. He was with them in the mandate to subdue and, and steward the earth and to create. The Spirit was there. We were made for that. The rebellion that destroyed that whole thing Uh, it was evil, it was darkness, it was sin, it was death. Everything that we know of life is actually the absence of the presence of the Spirit of the living God. And I think it's kind of telling this parable and that, maybe I'm making too much of it, but it was the listening to the snake that they fell into rebellion. And then this parable is talking about, would you rather have the bread of life or the snake? And then Jesus comes onto the scene and he says, I came to bring life and life abundant. His death, his resurrection, his ascension, his sending of the spirit, it's all to bring life and life abundant that we were made for. And so don't be confused. Core to the gospel, the good news about Jesus and the restoration of the kingdom of God on earth is an extending of the greatest gift over and over again, a life with the personal 
comprehensive presence of the Spirit. Ephesians 1, Paul tries to describe where we are in life, where you are, what's true about you. And he says, you have been given every spiritual blessing. Everything in heaven has been given to you. All the riches, all the worship, all the presence, all the glory has been made available to you. And so Jesus says, ask, receive, knock, walk into this open room, seek, and you will find. Come for it like a person desperately calling on their father, calling on their friend. Give me breath, spirit. Give me life. Our hearts were made for God. Our bodies were made for God. Our daily lives were made for God. And so we can actually this morning even repent and not seek the snake, not seek the scorpion. And we can believe that Jesus is so good that when we ask, we receive the Spirit of God with us in the hospital. When we ask, we receive the presence of God, the Spirit with us at school. That when we seek it, when we're looking, when we're knocking, we see the spirit that rose Jesus from the dead that birthed the church 2,000 years ago. We see that spirit in our engineering meetings, in our budget planning meetings, in the grocery store, at parent-teacher conferences, with you in your loneliness, with you in the garden, the spirit with you, period, full stop. Jesus says, how much more will our Father in heaven give the Spirit to those who ask? How much more? Uh, so, yeah, another question. That's a lot. What would be different in your life if it was infused with the Spirit of God? What would be different in your life? What would change if, if you saw and could see and be attentive to that? Y'all can answer. I know I was just talking over my own question. Hmm. Great. Circumstances wouldn't be crippling. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, contentment. Yeah, you would have less control. You know you have less control. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Mother Teresa, she used to say this about prayer. She said it in her book, 
No Greater Love. It's a really great book. It's like real thin. Because I think she was too busy loving people to like write a huge book. So take that, Tolstoy. Anyway, <laughs> she, she said this. She said, I used to believe that prayer changes things. But now I know that prayer changes us and we change things. So another question, what arenas of life do you hope to see the Spirit present? What parts of your life right now do you wish you could see and understand that the Spirit with you in those areas? All of them? Amen. Toddlers? Yes. Your neighborhood? That's good. I want you to, yeah, be thinking about that. What arenas of your life do you hope to see the Spirit be present and move? Uh, and so we're going to spend time this morning uh, in this moment, even as we come and we take uh, communion. And we can, all, we can all go into the back and take it with your friends or people in your community that you came with. But as we take, take, take some time in that intimate, closer setting to say, this is where I want the Spirit. This is where I hope to see the Spirit now. And as, even as the drinking and the eating, it's like this taking of, oh, we actually need, we need bread, we need wine just to exist. Just like we need the breath in our lungs to be filled with the Spirit, not just oxygen. And so let's spend time this morning asking, Father, give us your Spirit. Uh, let me pray for us as we do those things. Jesus, we... Thank you for the presence, uh, the life. We thank you that you give us the better gift, how much more, this an abundance, this overwhelming of your spirit. I pray for us to know that, to experience that. Uh, yeah, just your personal presence with us in life, that there's nothing that compares to that. Uh, thank you for all the places that you put us in the city in this world. And we just ask for more and more of your presence with us. Help us to seek, help us to knock, um, and be expectant to receive in an abundance of your power. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can go and take communion.